the Book of Acts. It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm finally preaching on something you're actually reading in the one-year Bibles again. Uh, it's a month after Pentecost, but we're going to read the story of Pentecost, which is in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love, by the way, that, that Paul's response when they accuse him of being drunk is literally to say, we can't be drunk, it's only nine in the morning, right? <laughs> if it was later in the day, sure, but at nine in the morning, give us some credit. This, this story of Pentecost, um, it actually fulfills 
some of the Old Testament prophecies. There's one in particular in the book of Joel that Peter will, uh, will quote here in a minute, but it's from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 30. And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And it's one of those prophecies that even the Jewish people in the Old Testament recognizes as, as this sign of the beginning of the end. And that's important to recognize because for a long time now, we, we've had every few years some crazy person pops up claiming they know when the world's going to end, right? You see the billboards on I-35, right? And, and then, of course, when that day comes and it doesn't happen, they say, well, no, no, we got this part wrong. It's going to actually happen next May, right? And there's always a new one coming up, and there's always a new theory about how, how things will end and when the last days will start. And the reality is the plain reading of the Bible is that the last days, the end times, began when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles at Pentecost. So all those prophecies that you read in the Old Testament about what it will be like in the last days, and every time you read those and they sound disturbingly familiar, it's because they are, because we've been living in them for 2,000 years. And I'm only telling this so that you don't get alarmed by these people who try and point out those verses in the Bible that make it sound like the world's about to end. The world's been about to end for 2,000 years. We don't know when it's going to happen. You don't need to worry about it. The point of those prophecies is not to freak you out or terrify you, but to make you recognize that the world is now different than it was before the Holy Spirit came. Pentecost is originally a Jewish holiday. Um, it's, it's the day when the Jewish people celebrated the Lord giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So they've gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the law, and now on the same day, God gives the Spirit. But it's not just that they're you know, enabled to speak in tongues or that there's tongues of fire resting on them, right? The, the visual things going on are an indication that God's presence has come to rest on each individual apostle. In Judaism, the way it works is that they believe God is everywhere, but, but in the temple, God's presence is sort of especially concentrated. It's like a hot spot of holiness. And, and to understand how they, how they conceive this, you have to understand that, that they, did not believe, they didn't understand heaven as this place up in the clouds way far away. For them, heaven is, is all around us. It occupies the same space that we do. If you watch the show Stranger Things... It's kind of like the upside down, except not dark and scary, right? It's a happy place. But it's the same kind of concept. It's right here all around us. You just can't access it or see it, but it's there. And there are some places where the boundary has worn thin and, and things can cross over. And they understood that, that in the temple, it was like the boundary was gone completely. You set foot in the temple, you are in heaven with God which is why they have so many rules for what you have to do before you can go in the temple. It's why before you can go into the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, the Holy of Holies, you have to go through an intense purification ritual and you tie a string around your ankle in case you die so they can pull your body out. Right? 
I'm glad I don't have that job. So there's something special about that place. But one of the things that Jesus did during his life is tell people over and over again, that's not true anymore. He told them over and over again, God's presence is not in the temple anymore. And in fact, if they had really paid close attention to their history, they might have recognized that, that it probably hadn't been in the temple since the day they were exiled into Babylon and the temple was destroyed. You've been reading, uh, well, you read recently, if you're following along in the one-year Bible plans, you, you read the story of Solomon building the temple and there's this incredible scene where the presence of God descends on the temple in this cloud of fire and smoke and this incredible glorious thing and everyone could see God physically coming to rest in the temple. And it's this incredible story. But do you, you'll notice later on, when they build the second temple, that doesn't happen again. This is actually one of the things that the Pharisees in Jesus' day are struggling with because they recognize that the temple they have now is not like the old one and that God's presence didn't descend. And so one of the reasons why the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to are so obsessed with the law is that they are trying to work out a theology of, of how God's presence can be with them if he's not in the temple and they settle on the Torah. God's presence is with us when we read the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am God's presence with you now. It's one of the reasons why he gets in so much trouble with the Jewish authorities is that he's telling them this whole time, nope, I am now the temple. And what happens on the day of Pentecost is that the temple moves again. And now, now the temple consists of the apostles. I've said before that uh, the Bible treats sin as something more like an infectious disease than like a, a breaking of rules. It's something that can, that can spread and grow and it's virulent. But it treats holiness the same way. And so there is this image in, in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost of holiness spreading from one person to another just like a virus. Because the idea is that now each of these apostles is the temple. Each of these apostles now represents a point where the barrier between heaven and earth has ceased to exist. And to be in their presence is to be in the presence of heaven. And so when they go throughout the world, they are carrying a little piece of heaven along with them everywhere they go, and it spreads and it grows. This is one of the things that makes Christianity different than any other religion. It's why we can talk about being in God's kingdom now, but also waiting for God's kingdom to come, because it's like we all have a little piece of heaven here with us, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of all those prophecies when God's kingdom will cover all. With the Holy Spirit in us, we're, we're like the carrier of the virus of holiness, spreading it, everywhere we go, but it only works if we open ourselves up to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The old temple made one place holy. And if you wanted to be in that holy place, you had to go to Jerusalem. 
The new temple is making the whole world holy because the new temple is meant to carry God's holiness out into the world. We carry God's presence with us wherever we go. The church building is not the temple. You are, and I am, and we have been charged by God to carry that presence with us to spread God's holiness and goodness wherever we go and to whomever we talk to. We carry God's presence with us wherever we go. Never forget that. Never forget that we are servants of a higher power. Never forget that we have a responsibility to spread the goodness and the love and the mercy of God wherever we go, whatever we are doing. At this moment, our culture is ruled by rage and hatred. More than anything else, that's what you see, rage and hatred, motivating everything on both sides. Even the Christians. Even in our churches, I see people motivated by rage and hatred more than anything else. I see pastors proclaiming it from their pulpits. I see people who I know who, who have claimed to be Christians their whole lives who have bought into that idea and who are living it out who are ruled by their rage and their hatred of the other, of anyone who disagrees with them. No one is immune to this. Which means we, we actually have an unprecedented opportunity to change the world for the better, to be the light in the darkness. And we're wasting it by clinging to political loyalties and to false divisions that God does not recognize. You know, we are unique. We're unique in our belief that all human beings are the same, that we are all one race beloved by God. That idea does not exist in the world before Christianity. The idea that human life has intrinsic value, that humans have rights doesn't exist in the world before Christianity does. It is unique. It comes because of Jesus and because of the apostles. The entire idea that, that we have something in common with every other human being who has ever lived, that's unique to us. And it's made the world a better place. And that idea is rooted the demise of slavery, the, the, the right of women to vote. All of it comes from, from the basic Christian idea that all humans are made by God, we're made in his image, and therefore we have sacred worth. But I'm telling you, my friends, that idea is fading and it is dying. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about any specific political incident here. Because you can find this everywhere. Everywhere and in just about everyone, you find this to some degree. Increasingly, we devalue the lives of people who we don't think are on our side. You may not even realize that you're doing it. 
but I know I have caught myself doing that. One of the reasons the early church grew as quickly as it did is that the world Jesus was born into was a dark and cruel and brutal place. It doesn't take long reading ancient history, reading books written by the people living in that time frame to realize it was not a world you'd want to live in. Because in that world, human life did not have value. In that world, the, the strong were encouraged to pray on the weak because the gods valued strength and power, and they rewarded it. It was not a good place to be. And people came flocking to the church because for the first time, they were hearing that there was a God who loved them so much that he died for them. And not only that, but that the people who worshipped that God loved them as well and would care for them and would heal them when they were sick and feed them when they were hungry. That did not happen before the church existed. People did not heal the sick unless there was profit in it. If you were poor and you got sick, someone might take care of you if you were their slave because they wanted you to get back to work. The church would just heal you for nothing. And they would care for you whether you could serve them or not. It was radical and it was different. And for the first time in all of recorded history, people were being told they were loved and valued simply because they existed. That's why the church grew, even in the face of persecution. That's why people were willing to flock to that church, even if it meant being ostracized from the rest of society, even if it meant facing punishment or death. Because at a certain point, it becomes more appealing to die for people who love you than to live with people who don't care about you. And if you look around you, you can begin to see in the world around us that that idea that every last one of us is made in the image of God, every last one of us is valued and loved by God, and every last one of us is worthy of love and compassion and mercy, that idea is beginning to fade away. The world is reverting back to tribalism, where the only people who have value are the people on your side. And that can be a scary thought, but it doesn't have to be. Christians should see this as our chance, as our chance to show the world that there is a better way, to do the exact same thing that our ancestors did 2,000 years ago and go and tell people that actually we're going to love you even if you disagree with us. We're going to treat you with dignity and respect even if we think you're dead wrong. Even if we think there are major moral problems in the way that you're living and the way you're behaving, we're still going to love you and treat you with respect and dignity because that's what God himself wants. Imagine. Imagine how different our country would be right now if the church had been doing that all along. Because to our shame, we have not. So we have a chance. We have an opportunity to be the light in the darkness. To live out the gospel as we were meant to do it. 
The story of Pentecost teaches us that God's divine presence comes and rests on each of us. That where we go, the barrier between heaven and earth thins out and vanishes. We have to take that seriously. That God himself goes with us. And if that is true, there is no one who can make a better difference in the world than we can. And if that's true, there is no one who can better show love and compassion to people who need it than we can. That's our calling. To do more than just show up to church on Sundays and and sing some songs and hear your incredibly handsome preacher give a good sermon. And do you notice it's not even so much about going and telling people that they've got to believe in Jesus. It's just going out and showing them that they are loved. Living out the gospel in your actions, in your thoughts, and in your words. If you want to go stand on a street, on a street corner and preach, that's great. But that's not going to get everybody. If you want to go and tell all your neighbors to come to church with you next Sunday, Great. But what about the waitress at your restaurant after lunch here? What, what will your actions and your conversations say to that person? One of the things that sets the apostles apart in the book of Acts is that as soon as they enter a room, people know something is different. Because the way that they treat people, the way that they think, the way that they act is so radically different from the world around them that people know just by being in their presence Something is different. We are all supposed to be like that. There's nothing in this book that says, yeah, yeah, they were really special, you're not, don't worry about it. The exact opposite. In fact, Scripture insists you're all supposed to be just like these guys. It's a tall order. It's very difficult. But it is our calling to live out the gospel in our own lives so fully and so completely that we really and truly are lights shining in the darkness. That people will look at us and see that we are different from the rest of the world around us, that there is something different about us. That we are not defined by our politics. We're not defined by our fear. We're not defined by which tribe we're in. We are defined by the simple fact that we are servants of our Savior. Let us be the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet and people can come to stand in the presence of the God who goes with us. Let's live out the gospel. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.